both. I'm Michael Hainsworth. An executive order giveth and an executive order taketh away. The new U.S. President Joe Biden has kiboshed the Keystone XL that had been given the green light by his predecessor. Alberta has fighting words for the new administration. Premier Jason Kenney insists Canada didn't start the XL fire and accuses the U.S. administration of disrespecting America's closest friend and ally. We saw this coming. Despite that, Alberta earmarked one and a half billion in taxpayer funds to promote fossil fuels in the province and fight back against climate change advocates. So what happens now? For insight, the Institute turned to Kristen Van de Biesenbos, an associate professor at the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law. Amid talk of lawsuits and fighting back, I began by asking a simple pointed question. Is Keystone XL dead? For the time being, it is dead, yes. You say for the time being. Now, critics have questioned presidential authority to rescind an existing permit. Is this why you're saying it's possibly still alive? No. Uh, in this particular instance, I don't think there's actually any question that the president has the authority to withdraw the permit for Keystone XL because it was issued via executive order. The only way that the president wouldn't have the power to do this is if sort of at a macro level, the president doesn't have the authority to issue or revoke a permit for a cross-border uh, crossing at all. And that is not a question that's been settled or resolved. So we don't know the answer to that. That's why I say for the time being, because it is possible that TC Energy could refile a lawsuit that was actually dismissed uh, back in, well, it was filed back in 2015. Um, and it did actually, after the Obama administration refused to issue a cross-border permit for Keystone XL, uh, TC Energy filed a lawsuit alleging that the president doesn't have the authority to issue or revoke a permit for cross-border pipeline. And as I say, it was dismissed as moot because President Trump took office and he had declared his intention to, to issue a permit for Keystone XL. So we don't actually have an answer to that question yet. But because the permit for Keystone XL was issued in the way that it was via executive order, and it's the only pipeline to have a permit issued in that way, there's no question that assuming that the executive order flows from correct presidential authority over a cross-border pipeline, there is nothing stopping President Biden's authority to re revoke it via another executive order, which he has done. To your point, if presidential executive orders are subject to judicial review, TC Energy, you figure, can just dust off the old file uh, because they were basically saying this is a NAFTA agreement. We have an understanding. You can't do this. We have sort of NAFTA 2.0 now. Right. Has the language at all given us any more wiggle room than back during the Obama administration? The language of NAFTA, you mean? Yes. Or USMCA or Kuzma. You, yes. Well, so actually the provisions of NAFTA are grandfathered uh, because of the time at which the TC Energy permit was made. Uh, TC Energy can choose to bring an action under the previous provisions of NAFTA or they can do it under USMACA. I suppose that's how you say it, USMACA. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I, I don't think there's anything in the investor state provisions, which is the the argument that TC Energy would bring that helps them out here, especially if their argument is that there's no power of a president to revoke an executive. So as you said, an executive order can be subject to judicial review, um, but the NAFTA process is separate from that. You don't question presidential authority in a NAFTA proceeding. The question there would just be whether or not uh, the U.S. acted unfairly or in violation of NAFTA or USMECA provisions in rejecting the, the permit for Keystone XL. 
Um, and I think that what makes everything so confusing for Keystone XL is because it was so unique in having its permit issued via executive order. No other pipeline has received a permit in this manner. And so it makes it quite difficult to tell what the chances of success would be. But I can tell you that my, my sense of this is that the chances of success are lower than they normally would be because there's no regular regulatory process backing up this permit. So then what about horse trading? You know, if Canada can assure the U.S. that our carbon emissions meet specific targets, wouldn't that give Mr. Biden cover to permit the expansion, something he said he was going to kill on day one? It could. It could. Um, I, but the problem, as you said, is because Biden has come out against Keystone XL from the beginning of his run for the Democratic ticket. So this is before he was even chosen as the nominee for president for the Democratic Party. Uh, he has been consistently against, against Keystone XL. So at this point, I'm not sure there's anything that Canada can do that would change his mind. I'd say Keystone XL is done. The only way to undo it well, there's actually no way to undo it. <laughs> but what you could do, as I said before, is TC Energy could revive its lawsuit. It could challenge the president's authority. The problem is that even if TC Energy is successful in a lawsuit claiming that the president doesn't have the authority to permit a cross-border pipeline, that doesn't actually get them the permit. That means that they have still got no permit. They have to reapply through a regular regulatory process through the State Department. It's a question of whether or not, you know, when someone says something like, can you horse trade, it's already been done. Um, what would happen, I suppose you could try to argue that uh, the Prime Minister Trudeau could make certain promises with respect to cutting carbon emissions and commitments to climate change goals and cooperation in order to get a permit for Keystone XL. But I mean, how do we want that permit? If once again, Biden issues a permit for Keystone XL via executive order, it would be just as vulnerable as the previous permit was. It could be revoked at any time. If President Biden loses his re-election or if he even runs for re-election, his successor could revoke the permit if Keystone XL hasn't completed its construction. And remember that Keystone was still hung up in federal court in Montana. So there was more going on. It's, this isn't the only thing that was slowing Keystone down. So, I mean, I suppose you could try to roll the dice and hope that uh, you could get a reissuance of Keystone XL's permit via executive order, but then you'd have to complete construction before another president comes along. <laughs> and again, I'm not sure that this is the precedent that you really want because you can see the uncertainty that surrounds a project that's permitted in this way. So then what happens to the newly built pipeline that's already crossed the border? It has to be removed. Uh, that's actually part of the provision in the original uh, permit that was issued via presidential executive order. You can actually see that in the permit, it specifically says that if the permit is revoked, which can happen at any time, TC Energy bears all costs for removing the pipeline. Um, so, you know, it depends on what TC Energy decides to do next. If they want to go into federal litigation in the United States over presidential authority, they may be able to get an injunction um, that stops states from demanding that TC Energy remove the pipeline that's already been built. Uh, if they don't choose to go that route, though, and they do go directly to NAFTA or they try to file a takings claim in U.S. court, then they probably will have to remove the pipeline that's already there. You described the $1.5 spent by Alberta this past March as a colossally bad investment. <laughs> yes. Where should that money have gone? Oh, gosh. You know, Alberta is in a very grim economic situation, as you know. There are many places we could have invested that money. I mean, I, I suppose if you're asking me, I would have suggested that we reinvest that money into 
economic stimulus plans, um, trying to attract more young talent. Um, there have just been a few articles that have come out recently showing that Calgary in particular is losing its young people. Um, and part of, I think part of that is the perception that the only game in town in Alberta is the oil and gas industry. And that if you don't want to work for oil and gas, there's nothing to do here. And, you know, I, I, it does feel a little bit like the current government has really put all of its eggs into that basket. And certainly the investment in Keystone XL would seem to back that up. And so it doesn't show that right now the province is looking forward into the future on how the, the economy can change with the times. Uh, so, I, you know, that's where I would probably invest the money. Plus, maybe just don't spend it at all because we don't have any money. Well, critics of Kenny's own report from his war room-style Canadian Energy Centre has been described as textbook climate denialism. Mm. Is there an opportunity to move the needle at all on this front? There's always an opportunity, but I will tell you that it doesn't appear that the province is interested in taking it at the moment. Um, certainly the war room, the fact that the war room even exists, uh, and the fact that, you know, the this anti- foreign funding Alberta oil inquiry has come, pieces of it have started coming out. Um, some of my colleagues are better to speak to on that issue than me, but um, this is a the kind of language that's in some of these reports that the province paid considerable money for. Describe uh, people who were against oil and the oil and gas industry as socialists, fascists, part of a global cabal. This language like that does not in any way suggest that the province is interested in trying to prove its bona fides to the rest of Canada and to the United States and to the world that we are also, we're just as serious about the environment as we are about keeping the oil and gas industry afloat. Well, how do we get 830,000 barrels a day from Hardesty in East Central Alberta to the coast? Well, Trans Mountain expansion, probably. Uh, Trans Mountain is currently under construction, and at least so far, it looks like, you know, I knock the proverbial wood if you're in the oil and gas industry, but it does look like it will be completed. Um, and for all the fact that Trans Mountain was very and is very controversial and faced a few significant delays, when you think about it from proposal to completion, which will probably happen in the next year or so, um, it's nothing compared to the delays that were faced by Keystone XL, which was proposed during the George W. Bush administration. This has clearly been a battle that's been going on for quite some time. Keystone XL? The entire pivot of the province mm. from oil and gas dependency right. to something greater than that. We had attempts to draw in that young demographic, as you pointed out, with very high-tech oriented incentives. Mm -hmm. Those were pulled back. Yes. Um, and I, I suppose, you know, without getting too political or talking about the political ethos of, of the previous party, the NDP, that was in charge of Alberta and was really pushing those tech incentives, versus the UCP, which is currently in power and withdrawing those tech incentives. There are actually numerous um, incentives that were also in support of renewable power, uh, carbon capture and sequestration technology, things of that nature that were also pulled back by the UCP under the sort of umbrella of being more fiscally conservative and letting the market really incentivize those types of uh, technologies. And I think what we're seeing is that you, you can't just sit around and wait for those things just to happen. They're not just going to happen. If you want uh, to pivot, and I don't even think it necessarily has to be a pivot. It doesn't have to be an and or, it can be, but you can also say that we are going to continue to allow the oil and gas industry to go to, to continue being a part of our economy for as long as it is able to sustain itself. But when it starts needing significant public money just to stay afloat and to complete projects, then you have to start asking yourself whether or not this is really the industry that it used to be. Um, 
I mean, you know, Alberta has has had has been able to avoid answering hard questions about the future for quite a while, because what would happen is that every time the price of oil would go down and our economy would so-called bust, by the time these kinds of hard questions were really coming to a head, the price of oil would go back up. So it allowed the province to really kind of put off any kind of planning for the future. Um, but I don't know that that we can just assume that that's going to happen this time. The price of oil probably will go back up, but I don't think it's ever going to be what it was, especially back in 2008 when Alberta was kind of swimming in riches. Um, I, that's not going to happen anymore. The problem for us also is that even if the oil and gas industry does manage to recover to some extent, what is Alberta going to do about its decade-long dependence on the revenues from oil and gas to supply us with our public money? So that's also a major problem. What do you see as the answer there? The, I think we're going to have to start thinking seriously about things like uh, a sales tax. You know, Alberta has has used the fact that it doesn't have a sales tax and that tax rates in the province are low across the board as some of the attraction for bringing in other industries like tech. But you can see that it hasn't really happened. Um, and that what it's left us with is a situation where we have a huge hole in our wallet and we don't have anything to replace it yet. I haven't seen anything from the UCP come out that's really going to make up for the, the shortfall from not having as much money from oil and gas royalties that we used to. Um, this plan to have mountaintop removal mining in the foothills of the Rockies under coal leases, the revenues that we get from coal leases via royalty are very small in comparison to oil and gas. So again, that's you can see the province is trying to come up with ways to make money as well as slashing the public, public budget, including in full disclosure universities where I work, um, but also healthcare. And you know, and and pre sorry pre secondary education as well. Um, you see all these ways of trying to to scramble about trying to generate more money or to cut costs, but there hasn't been a real serious explanation to anyone in the province of what exactly Alberta is planning to do to make up for the money that we've lost from dependency on oil and gas. You know, two years ago, you wrote that Canada's energy industry and the agencies that regulate it are suffering a crisis of legitimacy. Mm -hmm. Have things improved at all in that respect? How do we uh, deal with that issue? Well, what the federal government did to deal with the issue was uh, they passed Bill C-69, which rebranded the National Energy Board as the Canadian Energy Regulator and which revamped the Environmental Impact Assessment. Um, so we now have the, the Impact Assessment Act to improve environmental review of interprovincial projects like oil pipelines. But I think it remains to be seen whether or not that's actually going to change much. And I, I, you know, a lot of that was done while the Trans Mountain, while Trans Mountain was really in a crisis point. And so now we've sort of moved beyond that crisis point. I don't want to make it sound like Trans Mountain isn't still controversial because it is, but the federal commitment to Trans Mountain has certainly been one of the things I would argue that has pushed it forward despite the resistance that we've seen. And I think what we're going to continue to see is the federal government taking more of a role in fighting climate change. I mean, you can see it will be very interesting to find out what the Supreme Court does with the cases concerning the carbon tax, the, the federal carbon plan which is the centerpiece of our pan-Canadian framework on clean growth and climate change, which is the plan that Canada came up for to meet its nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement. So until that happened, before that happened, and, and that plan was released in 2016, you really had not seen the Canadian federal government take a really strong stance on coming up with a nationwide plan to fight climate change. 
And I don't think we're going to see them backing down from the leadership role that they're starting to take in energy projects. Traditionally, the Canadian federal government has not really gotten involved in these kinds of issues, but now we're really starting to see them take more of an active role. And again, I don't see that changing. I think it's only going to grow. The opposition to Keystone XL by the U.S. president has been seen by some as a, a gift to Justin Trudeau. Do you concur? Oh, well, I haven't. I, I'd have to hear more about why people think that's true. Um, it allows him to continue to um, act on a, a pro-climate change policy at the same time not being responsible for killing a pipeline in the process. Oh, I see what you mean. Well, to be honest with you, I don't think, especially given the federal investment in Trans Mountain, I don't think that Trudeau would have backed away from supporting Keystone XL. Um, I think that it's not impossible. Certainly countries like Norway have done this where you can have um, an active oil and gas industry and very strong commitment to climate change and sustainability. There are plenty of people who believe you cannot do that. Um, so it's an open question whether or not you can convince people, if you're the prime minister, that those two things can can sort of live in harmony. So I'm not sure that it really is a gift, especially since what you can see the prime what you can see uh, Premier Trudeau doing is try to. And now I'm going to be perfectly candid. To me, it seems like he's trying to cover up the fact that the province spent a huge amount of money on a project the cancellation of which was completely foreseeable and more than likely, especially once Biden won the Democratic nomination and he consistently polled ahead of then President Trump, it was pretty clear that Trans Mountain was, in, I'm sorry, Keystone XL was in serious danger. So the fact that he lost this much public money on a project that was always, well, at least since the issuance of a presidential permit via executive order in grave danger, it really sort of feels like he's trying to deflect blame for the loss of money to the prime minister and the federal government by trying to push them into very aggressive uh, sanctions, other types of trade measures to punish the United States for making the decision to withdraw the permit for Keystone XL. So I, I'm not sure that that's really what the prime minister wanted. I, I don't know if that's really a gift, but I suppose reasonable minds can disagree on that. But I, I don't think that Trudeau loves having um, this be, a, you know, Keystone and his I don't think that he is going to push for trade sanctions against the United States for this, especially since it's not really a trade issue. It's an investment issue. Um, but uh, it gives, I suppose, people who are very committed to being anti-federal government, it just gives them more ammunition. So I'm, I, I don't know that I would agree that it's a gift. Renewables overtook fossil fuels in Europe as a share of electricity generation. What lessons can Canada learn from this? Oh, Michael, we would need a whole other podcast to talk about why electricity in Canada is very different from electricity just about anywhere else. Um, in fact, the only jurisdiction in Canada that's really able to aggressively adopt renewable power, and by renewables, I mean non-hydro renewables, uh, to the extent that you've seen in the US and in Europe, the only jurisdiction that has the ability to do that is Alberta because of the way that we regulate electricity in this province. Um, we could do it, we have not done it. And part of the reason why is because if you want to really get a strong renewable industry off the ground, um, they need to be able to send their renewable power, not just to customers in Alberta, but to customers in neighboring provinces and potentially also the United States. And we are not able to do that for a couple of different reasons. And I, I again, we would need a, another podcast to talk about regulatory mismatch and electricity 
uh, market structures across the country, but uh, Canada has a very weird electricity sector, I would say. And it makes it tricky to try to figure out how to drive, especially private investment in non-hydro renewables, because access to electricity markets in most provinces is fairly closed because you have these really integrated provincially owned utilities like BC Hydro, Hydro-Quebec, Sask Power, Manitoba Hydro. So they provide most of their electricity themselves. So trying to figure out how to get a private company off the ground to sell wind and solar is not an easy thing to do. But by contrast, in Alberta, we do not have a provincially owned utility. So you can do that sort of thing. But you, what we've seen in Europe and the United States is if you really want to get that off the ground, you need to be able to provide incentives. Uh, the previous Alberta government did do that, and they were all withdrawn by the UCP. You're not a, a Calgarian. Where are you from? <laughs> I'm from New Orleans. You're from New Orleans. Yes. So tell me about the culture shock of going <laughs> from New Orleans to Calgary. Well, I have to tell you that no place is like New Orleans. So no matter where, I used to teach at the University of Oklahoma before I came to Calgary. So I was very used to going to other places and having them just be not New Orleans at all. So, and and honestly, I do go back usually, obviously I couldn't because of the pandemic, but I do go back uh, usually to see my family every winter. And it's always so wonderful to be there. New Orleans is a very unique city. Um, but I have to tell you that this is how I got into energy law because New Orleans, Louisiana, sort of similar to Alberta, is very dependent on the oil and gas industry. There's not a lot else going on there. Of course, New Orleans has its own tourism economy. But even, you know, even the really big tourist attractions in New Orleans, if you look carefully. So, for example, Jazz Fest, which is a huge, wonderful music festival in New Orleans that I hope all your listeners have the chance to attend because it's truly amazing. I actually also got into a spirited debate with someone about whether or not the Montreal Jazz Fest was better than the New Orleans Jazz Fest. And with all due respect, New Orleans Jazz Fest is better. Well, yeah, it was second to Toronto's Jazz Fest. Of course, of course. <laughs> um, but but it is it is actually the the shell Shell sponsors the the jazz festival. So uh -huh. so I am I am very familiar with living in you know an economy that's very dependent on oil and gas, and and so that's what got me interested in the energy industry in the first place. Is there anything Louisiana is doing right that Calgary and and Alberta could take a page from? No. <laughs> Louisiana is not, uh, Louisiana is not a, 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 I, you know, I don't think it's wrong to look to states like Texas and Colorado for how to go forward and how to transition into the new energy economy, because Louisiana is not doing that at all. So then what is it that's being done right in Texas? What is it that's being done right in Colorado? Mm -hmm. Well, Texas, so, I mean, it, in some ways, it's difficult to draw comparisons to Texas. There's a lot of reasons why I feel like Texas is a unique place, and it's difficult to say we should do what they did. Uh, because one of the big differences between Texas and any jurisdiction in Canada is that Texas has home rule cities. So that means that all of the large cities in Texas have an extraordinary amount of power to implement their own incentives, their own tax structures. Um, and, and that's really what has drawn people to Texas, I think, is their amazing, vibrant cities, which a lot of times those cities have very progressive policies with, with respect to um, encouraging business, encouraging entrepreneurship. Uh, Texas is always builds itself as open for business. And so if you look at, so let's say wind power, for example, 
Texas has the largest share of wind power of any single jurisdiction in North America. And that isn't really consistent with their images and oil and gas jurisdiction, but it is consistent with their open for business policy. Basically, Texas was like, look, we will give you some incentives um, in the form of renewable energy credits if you'll come into the state and build wind power. But also note that the regulatory structure of electricity in the United States means that you can build wind power in Texas and you can sell it to neighboring states or even across multiple states, which you cannot do here. Um, so, but that's, you know, Texas has the ability, especially individual cities in Texas have the ability to say, you know, not just come into Texas and you'll have these renewable energy credits that you can earn for building wind, but we also have, you know, an open regulatory structure. You'll be able to sell your power wherever you can send it. Um, they have a highly competitive electricity sector. Just generally, it's deregulated across all fronts. So um, it's very competitive in every sector of electricity, which is also quite unusual. We have that here in Alberta as well, but nowhere else in Canada. Um, and then, you know, the individual cities also were able to offer unique incentives like come to Dallas and we will, you know, give you these additional property tax breaks and we will offer you this office space or come to Houston and we can do something like that for you, too. So cities in Canada don't have those kinds of powers at all. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't I, th I think that the power of cities in places like Texas is often overlooked, but it shouldn't be, because if you go to Texas, um, and you're in, because I also used to teach at Texas Tech, which is in Lubbock, Texas, in Western Texas. But if you go to Texas, um, it's really like there's a huge difference between being in rural Texas and being in urban Texas. And so a lot of what brings people to Texas is their cities and the incentives that their cities are uniquely positioned to offer. So what then of other Canadian projects in the United States? Some people have asked me, does this mean that the cross-border permit for other Canadian pipelines is in danger, Line 3 and Line 5 in particular, Enbridge Line 3 and Enbridge Line 5? Um, and I would not say that. In fact, I haven't heard anything that would lead me to believe that uh, any of the other cross-border permits that are for existing pipelines are in any kind of danger. All of those cross-border permits were issued through the regulatory process, not through executive orders. So actually trying to reverse the decision on them now would be extremely difficult to do. And I have not gotten any kind of inkling that the Biden administration is interested in trying to do something like that. Where you should be concerned though, where Canadians should be looking is to individual US states. I mentioned how powerful states are compared to, they are very powerful and then the cities are quite powerful as well as I mentioned. Um, but when it comes to pipelines, the way that they're regulated in the US is much different from the way that they're done here. And even for cross, or I should say interstate pipelines, um, the states have a huge amount of regulatory authority, and we are starting to see the states beginning to push back on Canadian projects. And that includes Minnesota and groups in Minnesota pushing back against line three and the governor of Michigan pushing back against line five. So I think that that's where we need to be watching very carefully. I know it's easy to see the Biden administration revoking the permit to Keystone XL and come away with the thought that President Biden is the biggest concern for the oil and gas industry in Canada. I don't think that's true. I think you need to be looking to the states. Kristen, thank you so much for your time and insight. You're welcome. Kristen van de Biesenbos is an associate professor at the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, the math of climate change, quantifying climate-related risk disclosures with Ben Gully of the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions. That webinar is January 28th. On the 29th, Taking the Helm of a Pension Plan During a Crisis with Blake Hutchison of Omers, sponsored by Tories LLP. In February 9th, we discuss investment and growth, getting Canada moving again 
with Robert Aslan of the Business Council of Canada, the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters President and CEO Dennis Darby, and from the Government of Ontario, Deputy Minister for Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade, Giles Gerson. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.